Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for a Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux, Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, SUSE, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, Signifier, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today rejoined by two very special guests back by popular demand, Ali Hamed of CoVenture and Brent Bishore of Permanent Equity. Brent, Permanent Equity is a new brand. Yeah. Unpack it a little bit for us. Well, after I came on your show, I mean, my brain was so tarnished that I had to, uh, I had to rebrand completely. Um, so, no, it's uh, uh, it's something uh, we uh, we rebranded. Uh, gosh, let's see here, uh, eight weeks ago, six weeks ago, something like that. I don't know times. Uh, I don't know what day it is right now. So, but uh, we wanted to get a brand that uh, more closely matched. Uh, what we were doing. And to be frank, I was tired of having people ask me if we were based in Spain or, uh, <laughs> you know, if, if it was adventure.es or, you know, whatever the, whatever the, the flavor of the day was. So, or our emails getting rejected from servers because it looked like we were spammers. So, uh, but yeah, so we got permanent equity. Um, thank goodness for the foresight of uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who, uh, when I first started talking to him, gosh, I don't know, three and a half, four years ago now, uh, about permanent equity. Uh, I kept using the term permanent equity and he was like, I really like that. And then, you know, uh, he about a month later said, Oh, by the way, I bought the domain. Uh, you know, I think, I think this is going to be a thing. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. You know, whatever. And then I, uh, went to him, uh, you know, I don't know, four or five months ago and said, Hey, do you mind me snagging that <laughs> domain back from you? So yeah. anyway, yes, we're, we're permanent equity, uh, same, same company, same location, uh, same philosophy, uh, new name. Cool. So, uh, I, I've been trying to buy coventure.com for years. And the, uh, the guy who owns it is represented by some attorney in Canada. And for whatever reason, like they just won't come to the table. I'm like, guys, like I'm like pr- a pretty motivated buyer. <laughs> <You know>? like, <laughs> just, awesome. Let's have the conversation. Well, uh, I know they're listening to this Ali. So I'm excited for, for them to come to the table and Brent, I'm excited to put put permanent equity on the map. I mean, I mean, I mean, in this market, I think the price is definitely depressed a bit. Yes. But uh, if they are listening. <laughs> I like how you're hedging already. That's fantastic. <laughs> totally. Okay. So that's, that's a great segue in this market. Uh, Ali, you, you wrote a blog post uh, the other week talking about what the market means for the VC industry. Why don't we, we get in there? You know, what does it mean? Uh, how should VCs be responding to it? And, uh, what, what does what VCs believe about what the future holds for this market determine how they should how they should act as a result? Sure. So, so I think the first reaction was in, in the venture community broadly, like, okay, the market's down. Why does that affect us? You know, we're long term thinkers, and this is like going to last for a temporary period of time. But if you're investing in a company, you should have a five to ten year view anyway. So who cares? And my comment back was, the problem is not that the market's down. The problem is the reason the market's down, and the reason the market's down is because like everyone got sick. Some people died, so everyone else had to go home and they stopped buying stuff. And like, that's pretty bad, you know? And so like, sure, the stock market's down, but that's not the problem. The problem is demand's down. Um, and so the idea that like, this isn't gonna affect venture capital, I thought was fairly naive. You know, I think a lot of venture capitalists took it as an opportunity to like, 
market themselves on Twitter, which whatever, that's fine. People do that all the time. But I do think it was a little bit misleading to entrepreneurs. And so now, just like everything on Twitter, it's like two different polar opposites. There's the, oh my God, you know, if you're, if you're investing now, like that's crazy because we're all on hold and whatever. And there's the other camp, which is like, if you're slowing down your investment pace now, you're just a tourist and you clearly don't have a long-term view. And the answer is somewhere in the middle. The answer is everyone in their portfolio who has a lot of portfolio investments. And, you know, I use the word everyone and it's hard to defend absolute. So inevitably someone's going to come up with a counterexample. Most people who have enough investments um, have a company that's totally fucked right now. And, you know, the company may have lost 90% of its sales. It was a company that maybe was doing, you know, a million dollars of revenue a month. They had a net burn of $200,000 a month. They had enough runway for 18 more months. And now they have four months of runway or three months of runway. And they're not really sure if those sales are going to come back at all until they run out of cash. So VCs have to spend most of their time for you know at least a few weeks figuring out how to create bridge rounds or solutions or layoffs for those companies. And then on top of that, because there's less demand right now, top line growth is going to slow down. Usually third-party financings happen because of 70 to 100% or more year-over-year growth. Some sort of new inflection point is reached. And many of these companies are not going to hit that inflection point this year, which means their valuation may not be able to go up, uh, which means that their, their funds are going to have to do insider rounds for them, which means that funds have to go back and say, how much of my reserve capital do I have? Which means they can print less new names. So yes, less new deals will happen. Does it mean no new deals are going to happen? No, that's not true. We closed a deal on, on March 14th. We closed another deal on March 31st. Uh, we'll probably do two more deals in April. But you know, the opportunity cost of new dollars is low. And the last thing is, I think a lot of entrepreneurs in normal times view it that if they do a down round, it's very scary for the market. You know, VCs really love pattern recognition, partly because they're generalists and partly because they don't really know a lot, you know, aside from people who focus on a certain vertical, generally venture capital is, is done, uh, venture capital is done by generalists who look for pattern recognition to decide if a deal is probably good. And they like to see a seed round and then a series A and then a series B with reasonable growth in between. And we've all come up with these like insane terms to kind of make things fit within that. We have seeds extensions now and like series A extensions. That way, you know, it all fits. It's a perfect story. A lot of entrepreneurs have adapted to that. And so when they go out and they need emergency financing, what they're doing is they're reopening their last round or they're trying to do, they're trying to avoid a down round because they know historically that's been really bad. I've now seen a handful of entrepreneurs try to do that and see all of their best prospects of investors just write back an email, not even take the meeting. Hey, sorry, not for us. Because the market has adjusted and entrepreneurs, I think, haven't, you know, either gotten rational advice of we don't know to optimistic advice to looking at Twitter and seeing everybody say, oh, our doors are still open. It's business as usual. And I think that's probably damaging people. We have seen people raise rounds exactly like they were going to before. But I think that's the minority, not the majority, because there's more risk in the market now. So I've just talked a ton. But that's sort of the summary. Yeah. Hey, I have a quick question for you. Um, what? How do you? How do you see opportunity costs in venture capital sort of impacting, you know, the the valuations of these companies? I mean, is it is there sort of an echo as other assets drop in valuation and sort of rise in attractiveness, depending on what you believe to be true about the world? Um, how does that? How, how should somebody think about the opportunity cost and impacting? Yeah, impact evaluations. So, so I think, you know, in other asset classes, it's probably easier to measure. So, right. So like in credit markets, spreads went up by, you know, whatever, 700 basis points. 
And so then, you know, in our credit fund, which we manage, we now know that if we used to retarget an X return, now it's like X plus N. I don't know what N is, but if you're one of our limited partners and you used to be thrilled about whatever return we were getting, be, and, and you were comparing that to like liquid ABS or liquid, you know, high yield, um, and you needed some premium because we're illiquid, uh, you would then say, well, if I used to be happy with that, but I can get a better return in my other portfolio, and that's what I compare you to, you need, now need a higher return. And you're going to see that all of our competitors in credit are doing the same thing. Um, and then on top of that, I know that after two to three more months, defaults will start to occur. They haven't yet. And when that happens, if I invest a dollar today, that means I have one less dollar to invest tomorrow when yields have gone up. In venture, there is sort of that opportunity cost and new cost of capital that's being effectuated. But that's um, the, the short-term effect is because today I can do bridge rounds into really high quality companies at really low valuations that I never used to get to do before. You know, it used to be that if I was seeing some company in a reasonably large space that was growing and it was growing 100% year over year and it was doing seven figures of top line revenue, there was no way that that deal wasn't going to get a bid up by a handful of firms. Now there's so much of that happening. There's so much triage that I'm getting to do deals that like I am, I can't believe the, the luck. But it does mean that when another company comes to me, my opportunity cost, like I can still only do a certain amount of deals out of my fund. I probably will do more deals in 2020 than I do in 2022. But, you know, I'm still, you have to be for, you have to compete for my attention with another company that I'm getting like a bargain on. I think um, that's, so that's plenty. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And I think we're seeing that as well is, is there sort of intra-industry opportunity cost and then inter-industry opportunity. Yeah. So, so what are you seeing in terms of like, you know, the, the deal flow? Is it mostly emergency deal flow right now? Is it, yeah. you know, your portfolio? Like, what are you seeing right now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so if you have a solid company that's on good footing, you've got a good balance sheet and, you know, um, you're not going out to market right now to, to, to sell your company. I mean, there's just no way. Um, mm-hmm. So you, you basically have a, a, a pretty nasty selection bias right now of companies that are, you know, trying to get sold, right? And, you know, we, we opened up something called Safe Harbor, which <laughs> at the time uh, look, looked helpful. Um, the, the government has, has ended up uh, just, just uh, hammering that program because, uh, you know, our cost of capital is going to be way higher than, than theirs. Um, I can't, sure. unfortunately. And although so, although you, you actually have the competency to deploy it. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, politics like the SBA is like the DMV of finance. I have no idea how they expect people to, the, the SBA program to actually deploy the capital they so they would. You know, it, it, so in all fairness, I, and I look, I've been, uh, I, I would, I would agree. And I've actually used that exact line uh, in the last month. Uh, and I was really, really worried about it to, to the credit of the SBA and the, and the banks. Um, we are seeing uh, a lot more throughput and liquidity into the system through that program than I ever would have dreamed. As, as That's great. And so, I mean, it, look, again, politics aside about, you know, whether or not it should be going through them, uh, it, it is. Um, and so the reality is, how are they doing? And I, I'd say, to be honest, they're doing doing pretty well. Um, I mean, we're, we're talking to people daily who are, you know, have gotten their numbers uh, that sort of the, hmm. you, you so the bank, well, the way it works is you apply to the bank, the bank then goes to the SBA and gets a, basically a guarantee code. And uh, as long as it's a conforming loan, that guarantee code holds. And so that's kind of your place in line. And then, then you execute on the documents. And so have, have you seen people get the amount that they applied for or have they, because we've gotten a couple of people that we've been told the loan's going to go through, but we haven't been given the paperwork. And there's two main questions I had. The first is what kind of consent do you need from your shareholders and your senior lenders if you already have debt? 
And the second is, sure, you got the loan, but is it the amount that you thought you were going to get? And I don't know if anyone has the answer yet. Yeah, so so we're seeing that um, the loans, that, so the banks are taking uh, liberties to to basically ask for different amounts of money than, than what people are based on what they see in the documents. Um, and so this mm-hmm. is, again, where depending on the skill level and the expertise of the bank, um, it can have a material effect on the amount, but both positive and negative, to be honest. Um, I mean, uh, I think they're, they're trying to get it right, and, and they feel like they're on the hook for making sure they ask for the right amount of money. So I think there is some complication there. My understanding is that uh, because it's unsecured, and because it's 100% guaranteed that you don't need consents, that it sort of bypasses consents of other lenders. Um, and so we actually have not seen that uh, be a problem in that segment of the market yet. And so, again, in, in general, I mean, I actually, I, I think that the program is working for what it's designed for is actually working way better, succeeding my expectations. Um, now, the next round that just came out uh, announced yesterday, which is this sort of the, not a forgivable loan, but it's a one to $25 million uh, four times cap on EBITDA amount that came out as it, it was part of the CARES Act as well, but it's sort of an execution of the a different part of the CARES Act. That portion comes with a lot more strings attached. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how companies react to that. And you've got another really interesting thing. So you know, all these programs is sort of are, are an overlapping uh, mosaic of uh, of advantages and disadvantages depending on what type of company you have, right? So that the one that came out yesterday is, you know, it's all EBITDA based. So if you're not, you know, making money, uh, at least on an EBITDA basis, um, it really doesn't apply to you. And so, you know, they're trying to, I think, target in some ways, and maybe I'm giving too much credit here, but I think they're trying to target certain types of industries with certain types of capital. And I would just ask, I mean, so what are you guys seeing in, in VC? I mean, uh, is it, I know the affiliation rules held, so that's created some, some challenges, but, but you know, what are you all seeing in, in VC world on the PPP program? Eric, do you want to go and then I'll go? I, I, uh, I think it's too early in terms of, I, we're seeing startups wrestle with sort of the ethical implications, uh, ethical questions of, you know, should they apply? Is it appropriate for them? Uh, I haven't heard any startups in our portfolio hear back from, from, from that program yet. And, you know, I, I hear that it's quite a doozy to, to, to make sense of and to apply in, in the first place. Yeah. Um, we're, we're seeing most of them apply. We're seeing most of them say, hey, you know, we were going to fire people if, if we don't apply. And so, you know, the money's been allocated and we, we think it's appropriate. Yeah, my, my, my philosophy is a job's a job's a job. If you're trying to save jobs... I, I mean, uh, I think that, you know, there's an argument to be made about which jobs should you save uh, and is it delaying the inevitable, which I, I think in some cases it is. Um, if there's a material downdraft in, in long-term demand and we think that the world's changed in sort of a sustainable way, then, then it's just delaying the inevitable. But I think there are jobs that are, you know, you're, you're just running into a solvency issue, which I think this does solve. And, and I think it's, it's intended in, in those cases to, to be that. So, I mean, I, I don't have a problem at all with VC back startups applying for it if it helps save save the jobs that they was intended to save. So I've seen some of those like sort of like moral dilemmas like, oh, should you really apply if you don't if you don't need the loan? I think anybody who knows that they don't need the loan either has a lot of cash or feels that they're smarter than a virus. Like that takes a lot of confidence to think that you're smarter than knowing how a global pandemic will end up and whether or not that'll affect you. And I think that if it turns out you apply for the loan and the pandemic is resolved and you didn't need the cash, then you should use the option, have the ability to donate the money later to someone who really needed it. You don't have to ask for forgiveness on it. You could just, you can yeah. just pay your 1% return the money. Yeah, but, but like make the decision later when you actually know for sure. Because I know if I was an employee of a company 
And the CEO is like, wow, as a sign of strength and like out of righteousness, I'm not going to take money that was offered to us to keep us safer than we might otherwise be. I'd be pretty annoyed. You know, I think that there's certain businesses that are like wildly profitable. So like it's, you know, I think I saw a couple of newsletters that said, you know, maybe a hedge fund that has five employees and a billion dollars of AUM shouldn't apply. Yeah. Okay. I agree with that. But for most of our portfolio, com- and then it's not like VC backed companies are backed by, you know, these ultra rich GPs who are going to be rich one way or another. No, the capital is being invested by endowments and pension funds and everything like that. And, you know, that's the purpose of what this capital is out there for. Demand went down. You can now print money without as much risk of inflation as normal because you have so many deflationary factors. And the point to Brent's point is a job's a job is a job. And you should take capital that the government is providing to us. Try to keep your employees safe. Uh, I'm seeing a couple of dynamics in VC right now. One is on the investing front, you know, as Ali mentioned, we're seeing deals and other VCs are seeing deals that they tried to get in six months ago, you know, a year ago, couldn't get into. Now it's open, you know, just a little bit higher price or maybe the same price. And it's like, oh my God. Um, so, so, so some deals, so it's a, it's a good time to be investing at the same time. People are saying, Hey, wait, is it going to be a better time to invest? You know, three months from now, six months from now, nine months from now, our price is going to, you know, go back down significantly. That, that's one question people are wrestling on the investing front, you know, how much drive how to reserve. And it relates to sort of the LP front, which is if you were fundraising, you most likely paused. <laughs> uh, and the question is, are you, you know, three months from now, six months from now, nine months from now, is it going to be a worse time to fundraise, uh, to, uh, you know, to work with LPs than it is, than it is now. Uh, it was sort of, you know, the devil you don't know better than the devil, you know, if the devil is quite, is quite bad. Uh, Ali, what, what's your, um, take on how VCs should, should handle those questions? You know, it's, um, the, with humility and to say that you don't know, which is, this could end up going three months or six months. It could come back. It could be so bad that we don't even know. So, you know, we're picking our spots. I'm not going to deploy my whole fund this month, but you know, maybe, uh, when I see stuff that truly looks, you know, unbelievable, I'll pull the trigger. I'm comfortable being too late than too early. And, you know, my job is to be a reasonable fiduciary of capital to my LPs. And if it turns out that like, I didn't pull the trigger fast enough, but continue to have a three year investment period in which a majority of the deals come in and valuations will probably stay lower for a while. I can live with that. I can't live with putting a bunch of capital out now and then four months later, all being gone. Brent, curious how you guys are handling that. And I'm sure, you know, you're kind of struggling with the same issues. And, and Brent, just to add to that, you, your own question of what do you believe about the world in six months from now, 12 months from now, how does that affect, you know, your, 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 your work? Yeah. I mean, I, I, so I think that we don't know, and, and we are trying to have a high amount of humility. I mean, I think that we're, we're trying, constantly trying to triangulate and, and sort of calibrate what we believe to be true. Um, but right now, I mean, the, the band of outcomes is just so dramatic that we, we just honestly, you know, unless you have long-term government committed, you know, contracts, and even those, I mean, could be reshuffled. Uh, I think the the risk tolerance uh, is just down a lot. I mean, and I think rightfully so. I mean, we haven't really talked about, I mean, the virus is one, obviously, heavy risk factor, but I think that it is going to be a more risk on environment, regardless. Um, and I think that, that you will see, you know, world actors that uh, maybe have uh, uh, ulterior motives trying to shake things up even further and trying to destabilize things and taking advantage of those, you know, natural disasters will, will still come. I mean, we're not going to, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, 
nature takes a pause on that stuff. So I think that we're going to be set up, you know, sort of more fragile than, than we would overall as a system. And so I think that all those things we're trying to take into account and, and at the same time, not, you know, go into a hole and shut down the entire process. I mean, we still have full team. Uh, we have no intentions to lay off anybody. Um, we want to continue to, you know, move forward on, on opportunities. I mean, we're actively in discussions on a daily basis with, with companies. Um, but I can tell you that our opportunity cost has definitely risen. Um, and I think unlike VC, which you, you're seeing, you know, the good deals kind of coming back quicker. If you look at like a 2008, which I think this is materially different in many ways than 2008, but the, the lower end of the lower middle market really didn't reprice for about 18 months. And deals really didn't start, you know, coming online that were, I would say, a high quality for probably three years. I mean, that is, that's brutal to think about, right? Um, and so I think that there is a danger that you, you know, if you've been in the mode of fundraising, I mean, look, we just, we just completed a fundraise. Uh, the timing was, was fantastic. And we have a 10 year horizon on that capital. Um, we're in no rush, but we're also open to opportunities. I mean, I think is how, how we, we, you know, sort of the posture we're taking the, the issue ends up becoming, and I said this earlier, is a selection bias. It's like, if you have a great company right now and you don't have to sell for some you know reason, you're just not going to, I mean, you're not going to sell. I mean, there's just no way. And so, and the government's providing sort of the bridge capital needs right now. And so for us, we're just trying to watch and see and have good conversations, build good long-term relationships, um, be helpful. You know, I've been proud of our team that they've really kicked into gear and tried to, you know, create content that's helpful to these businesses, how to cost cut, uh, how to think about these government programs. Um, You know, the finance teams put out calculators. And then of course, we've got our own portfolio of nine companies that we're actively engaged with on a day-to-day basis. And, um, you know, some are uh, lightly affected and some are more heavily affected and, 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 and it's rolling too. I mean, we've got construction firms that uh, will have job sites shut down for a week. Some will have job, job sites shut down for a month, uh, for a day. Uh, you know, it's every, every day is kind of a new day in, in what's being allowed and what's not. And so I think that it's just a, it's such an uncertain time right now that it's really difficult, especially when you're trying to do longer term uh, majority type uh, buyouts. Uh, it's just really difficult right now to execute on it. And that's even without us needing to have uh, a bank involved. I mean, we're, we're pretty much, I mean, I, I'd say the only one, um, but in the private equity, probably the only group that doesn't traditionally use uh, bank financing as part of our transactions. I can't even imagine trying to get a, a deal done right now and trying to get a bank's attention to get a deal done. Like uh, it's inconceivable. I mean, I talked to a, a buddy of mine who runs private equity, uh, sort of all private investments for a large endowment. And he said he just considers private equity to be shut for business uh, and real estate to be shut for business. You know, I, obviously, I, I, I don't know where VC is. And it sounds like that, you know, sort of VCs may be a little less shut. But certainly, I mean, this idea of opportunity cost, I think, really matters. And, and ultimately, owners need to understand that it's just repriced, uh, you know, what sort of is the opportunity cost is repriced. I mean, when you've got an Airbnb, you know, taking on mid-teens, uh, yielding uh, capital, and you've got you know United Airlines taking unlevered planes and and having low twenties yield on that debt. I mean, it's just got to reprice everything down down the market. Yeah, I think um, you know in, in in your world, Brent, it's it's going to take longer because companies have more companies have more optionality, and so there's more negative selection bias, right? If you need to be purchased, there's something wrong. In venture capital, the default is you're going to need to fundraise, and just fundraises go better or worse. But, you know, Eric, if I, it, it, you know, in, in our shoes, I would say the companies that are 
good aren't going to wait three years to to go raise money because they can't. No, very few venture capital companies can. But if they if they're good and they're raising now, it was because something recent happened and they were midway through the raise and the and the fundraise fell apart and now they just have to raise. And that those are going to be few and far between. But the good companies are probably going to still come out in the fall. They're going to put the brakes on it now. They're probably not going to even try to raise in the summer. And like this fall is going to be a really, really good time to invest probably. And you're going to have a ton of deal demand. And so you're going to have more capital demand and supply. And if I were us, I would just gear up for September and October and November. Those are going to be really, really busy months. But trying to do too much too soon right now, just because you read a bunch of blog posts that said you're supposed to be contrarian and buy on the dip, probably doesn't make sense. And like, I can tell you, my calendar is pretty empty. Like if you were to look, like usually my day is like 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 minutes. If you look at my calendar, you might think I have to have a job. And it, I'm doing that because one, our companies have emergencies and I want to keep my calendar open so they can call me on my cell phone at any time. And then I'm not trying to make myself busy. I know that it'll happen. And so in the meantime, I'm just like working on, you know, I'm, I'm watching workout videos with my fiance and I'm drinking tequila, you know, and I'll come back to investing when things get better. Isn't that your normal life, Holly? <laughs> I'm just doing um, Close, super close. <laughs> but more calendar invites. That actually is a, it's a good question. So Ali, how, how, what do you think, uh, how do you think coming out the other end of this, what you've learned during just on personal habits, like time usage, how do you think your life will look different as a result of this sort of more permanently? Or do you think it will at all? So I have a friend who um, had this great line. He's like, yeah, I keep telling people that like, you know, I can't deal with that right now just with everything going on, but I'm not that busy. You know, and, and it was pretty funny because what he really meant to be saying is you do all the stuff that you get asked to do because you feel guilty not doing it. And we now all have an excuse to not do stuff. And it's like a really believable excuse. And it makes it so that we're all kind of actually opting in instead of like getting pulled in and sucked into stuff. So I've been only doing things that I actually want to be doing, having said yes, knowing that I had the choice to say no it really makes me wonder what my ability to say no in the future will be. So yeah, I guess time management. I'm also spending a lot more time with our portfolio companies and I'm loving it. Um, It is really fun to sort of um, get under the hood a bit more instead of doing everything in 20 minute increments. And I'm also finding myself talking to people I haven't caught up with in a while um, and just having time um, to do that. I was going to say, I mean, that's the same thing that that I've been experiencing is just having a more open calendar and, and less sort of, busy stuff that I've been doing uh, has really opened me up to have deeper conversations and be able to like linger when you should linger. And I think mm-hmm. not, not being rushed to go from one thing to the next. Um, I, I really hope that I'm able to keep that. I mean, uh, we'll see when, when life comes back, you know, snaps back what that looks like, but it's definitely given me, given me a hope that, that maybe I can eliminate some of the hurry from my life that I think that had crept in. Um, and also I, I eat so much better now that I'm not eating out. It's incredible. Oh, Keelan's got me in the whole 30 diet. I'm ah! the worst. <laughs> You're yeah, gonna be like way for thick here in a month. Totally. It's unbelievable. I just yeah, want sugar just, so bad. When you ha- when you have a full calendar, every you know, every bad meeting is too long and every good meeting is too short. Yeah. And it, as Ali mentioned, it does have sort of this hell yes or no dynamic of uh of, of really being focused. You know, I thought I was gonna have to have kids to be able to have an excuse to get out of uh Get out of stuff. I've but, just I've just made it up. I just tell people I have kids. <laughs> but uh, yeah, now there's much easier reason. But uh, it allows me to you know to linger as as you mentioned. Uh, Brent, you mentioned earlier this is different than, than 2008. Let's let's 
let's double down there. I'm curious if uh, let's double click there. I'm curious because you know some people say things like, "Hey, our economy was structurally sound. You know, as, as soon as this gets back to normal, we'll have some sort of recovery." Some people say, "Hey, even if our economy was structurally sound, you can't just reco- you know you can't just pause for two months and go back to the way things were before, assuming we, we uh, you know the virus is contained or or, or or doesn't you know flare up in a way that causes us to separate again." Uh, and other people say, "No, no, no. We were actually." Uh, you know, our economy was not structurally sound and something like this was going to happen, whether it was a virus, whether it was something else w- w- was needed or was going to happen to sort of reset. W- w- where's your stance? Yeah, I mean, I think this this is, um, you know, made mostly of our own choosing. And by the way, if you hear uh, screams in the background, no one's dying. It's just uh, I have three girls under six. So I actually have have kids. And uh, the excuse, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, he's just um, got a recording in the background, actually. It's just like a radio. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Different pitches. You're yes. trying to end the conversation. I'm just kidding. Um yeah, I mean, I, so like, I, I think uh, I, I made a comment in, in one of the pieces that, that I've written that um, it, it feels like a combination of, of prohibition and imminent domain is kind of what we're going through right now. Um, and, I, you know, uh, I, I am not smart enough. I'm not a macroeconomist. Well, you know, I, I don't know what uh, what's the uh, phrase that uh, uh, economists were created to make astrology look legit. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I'm not smart enough to know, you know, sort of all the underlying uh, uh, reasons why something could go wrong. I can tell you that the, the situation we're in now, I mean, we had a pretty good beat across our companies on the economy and the economy going into uh, March was fantastic. Things were going well. Uh, demand was fantastic. You know, the labor markets were really, really tight. But, you know, look, stuff was getting done. And, um it has just gone off a cliff. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know what to say. I mean, it's not like this is a, uh, it's not like people over levered. It's not like there was some contagion that, you know, you know, man-made contagion, right. That hit the market. Um, I mean, this, this feels like we are in a situation that it's, it's, it's much closer to a natural disaster, but it's just a natural disaster that's hitting the world all at the same time. And so in terms of the recovery out of it, I mean, I don't think there's a playbook coming out of this thing. Um, I think that there is, you know, going to be just a material difference in certain types of demand. I mean, when you have the government standing in front of you saying, don't get close to people, um, don't travel, uh, you know, it's going to take time if everything, let's say, you know, we, we create a vaccine and everything returns to, to normal, quote unquote, um, it's going to take a while for people to sort of have that muscle memory, uh, um, you know, go back to something closer to what it was before. I also think that it's shown that there is a lot more latent risk in the system than a lot of people were seeing. And so, you know, my guess is that savings rates uh, sort of increase, uh, risk tolerance decreases just in general. And I think that will ripple through the economy. I mean, if you're if you're a business owner and you say, you know, I could buy that piece of equipment, but I think I'm going to buy it used instead of new, right? I mean, that that has, you know, I'm going to fix stuff that I have that maybe is not optimal. Um, I'm not going to hire those two extra people that I think I could really, you know, expand. I'm going to, you know, sort of just we're going to we're going to be a little leaner. You know, I think those things in general um, do have an effect on on the economy, and I think that we're headed. You know, my best guess is that we're going to, we're headed to rolling lockdowns. I think until we have a vaccine. Um, and I think those rolling lockdowns will be by geography. I mean, the United States is so big and you can't, you can't, you know, sort of, it's not a monolith, right? I think there's going to be, you know, rolling lockdowns in, in large cities or in regions. And then until there's a really effective therapeutic or until there's a vaccine, I think that we're in this weird no man's land. Um, and I think that could last for, you know, 18 months, two years, maybe even a little bit longer. 
Um, and I think that that's sort of the new normal that we're headed for is uh, um, a, a sort of in general, broadly decreased demand, um, just based on those sort of factors, you know, sort of lowering productivity and then higher savings rates. I mean, I think we'll ripple through most everything. There, there are going to be, you know, call it five to 10% of businesses that get a tailwind uh, or are sort of largely unaffected by this. But I think the, the vast majority are going to feel it in, in some meaningful ways. Yeah, I think also um, to that point, you're going to see a lot more companies set themselves up with variable costs, you know, as much as they can. So, you know, you're seeing the resiliency of e-commerce right now over physical retail. You know, I think people are going to really decide do they need a store to sell stuff. stuff. You know, I think that may never change or that will have changed and never gone away. I, I agree with you. I don't I don't know that this is like a going back to normal. But I do think it's also important to like kind of think about like what if it does, you know, and just sort of have the playbook for each part. You know, yeah. what if things go really well and have that playbook? What if things go really, really badly and have that playbook? And just lean into the I don't know factor. Yeah, yeah that's what we've encouraged basically all of our companies. We we have we've encouraged them that that you know what are plans for X decrease in revenue, Y decrease in revenue. You know what are the trigger points based on you know how long this thing goes, so that everything's mapped out ahead of time, so you don't have to think about it. You've already you know sort of given it the calm thought, and then coming out the other side of this thing, it's the exact same. It's like, you know how could we uh, potentially you know use this crisis uh, for good to consolidate, you know, talent that we, we never thought we'd be able to access to some, some assets, you know, whatever those may be. I think those things on both ends, you know, on the way down and on the way back up, uh, look important to be able to plan out with the humility that you just don't know. Yeah. The, the, the other, you know, KPI that I think is going to come out of all of this is, you know, when you're thinking about like what you're going to pay, pair back on in terms of spending, you know, what, what's the value of all the stuff that you pay for? So like one of the KPIs that I always or I always tell people that like my iPhone is the cheapest thing I own because like what I paid for it compared to how much I use it is like unbelievable. And then like you start thinking like how cheap is Spotify relative to utility? How cheap is Netflix relative to utility? How expensive is the car relative to utility? And you start to think about like this like sort of utility versus spend, you know, and especially when you start seeing also parts of like the ecosystem that really gets affected. So, you know, you start thinking about consumer demand, even consumer lending, you know, subprime, People are looking at being like, wow, the default rates in subprime are going to get really high. The reality is they've already been really high, you know, and, and the, the sad reality is for subprime and deep subprime, life's a recession, you know, and then for super prime, they're probably going to be okay. And it's a bunch of people who are sort of sitting in their apartments and getting delivery and are feeling okay about it. Um, it would maybe with a deep sense of guilt, which is, you know, I, I definitely feel deeply guilty about the, what's going on in the world and the fact that we're, you know, Q and I are safe and everything like that. And it, but the people that are going to really affect are the people in the middle. It's the people who are good borrowers, they're good spenders, and they've spent their whole life following the rules, even though they're kind of hanging on the edge. And they're the ones who are going to really be making um, sort of significant changes. Um, so when you're thinking, when, when we're also looking at our, the demand and the revenues and the customers of our portfolio companies, you know, the first thing we did is we said, please send us a list of every single one of your customers broken down by the industry they're in. Do you have like, are all your customers in the travel and hospitality space? That'd be really bad. Are they SMBs? That'd be really bad. Are they financial services institutions? That wouldn't be so good. And then understanding of those, like, which are the middling credits? Because the good credits will say the good credits, the bad credits will say the bad credits. It's the middling ones that are, you know, sort of worrisome. Totally. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting analyzing consumer behavior and also enterprise behavior in terms of, you know, are, are they going to freeze new business expenses? Are they going to embrace new ones that, you know, are, are cutting costs in a way that they wouldn't have before? Um, I mean, and, and enterprise sales will probably be get get hit harder than consumer subscriptions um, because I don't 
see people turning off Netflix and Spotify right now. And Spotify and Netflix are not going to give you a discount. Like they just don't care enough about you. But I know that like for all of the enterprise software that we use, we're getting pretty good discounts. Our portfolio companies are getting good discounts and people are trying to take care of their existing customers. So we'll see. I think different companies will be affected in different ways. And anyone who thinks they have the answer is, uh, I am excited to see how their predictions end up. Yeah. One of the things that I think that, that, that might end up being sort of a long lasting thing is digital community as being much more important than it's been in the past. I think it's been you know, sort of an augmentation of uh, sort of real life community and person community. I think that these digital communities that are being formed, I think that you'll see a lot more of these formed that will uh, enable a level of intimacy and, and true community that maybe haven't been there before. So I'm, I'm actually excited about that part. Um, you know, I, prior to this, I was not a heavy Zoom user. I've used Zoom, you know, a couple times. And I got to be honest, I mean, I think we might travel less in business just in general. I mean, I think it's still a signaling mechanism to show that you really, really care and that it's, you know, a relationship's important. But I think that the, the actual utility of it, you can bypass a lot of that and use sort of digital tools in a way um, that could create a lot more, a lot higher productivity. I mean, I think it has obviously implications on certain industries, but um, I think in general, it could be a really useful thing long-term. Yeah, I'm a little nervous about how many digital communities are going to exist. Like, I remember, like, I, w- I was already overwhelmed with how many Telegram groups I was in. <laughs> and like, that was like, cr- crypto Telegram groups were really mania. And I, I don't really need one more Slack channel. And I'm, you know, I've already been like, in- there's already like a couple of uh, Zoom groups that have now formed. And like, you know, I, they're cool. They're, they're really cool. But th- it is a lot of content. The challenge is saying that you can't hang out. Like, I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but someone's like, hey, do you want to Zoom later? And you're like, um, I'm available, but, you know, I kind of want to just read. I don't know. Is that a, you know? So it's really hard to get out of stuff right now in a weird way socially. Just, just tell so, me you have, you have kids. You can't yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's like like uh, I was talking to a friend and I was like, I, like, I was about to say I have to go. And I didn't have to go. I just wanted to go. And, and I was like, I was like, hey, man, like, it's going to be pretty bad. But like, I'm kind of out of stuff to say. Yeah. And I'm just going to go watch TV now. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. We'll, we'll, let's go with the LPs a little bit. I, mean, I feel bad for, I have some friends right now who are trying to, ra- who are trying to raise their first venture fund when COVID hit. And I mean, if you were trying to raise a venture fund, especially a micro fund in 2019, that was like the best time ever. And, and you know, so many micro funds got off the ground. But now, I mean, you know, on the endowment side, you know, they were already over allocated to, to venture to, you know, illiquid portion, you know, they're getting crushed. I mean, you know, you, people, you know, universities, you know, obviously don't have students there. Students are now realizing they're paying all this money for Zoom calls that they don't even want to be on in the first place. Parents are seeing them, you know, at home and saying, hey, why are we paying all this money? You know, our class is going to reopen in the fall. I, you know, I don't know. So that means they need more money for, for yeah. the LP markets are shot. If you're trying to raise a fund right now, it is a really bad idea to call people because you're going to get a no and you might as well wait a few months and then reopen to fundraise because like a maybe later is better than a pass. So how about this? If you are raising a fund right now, it's because like you're, you're, I mean, it's special. And so I'm sure that the funds that now, if it's like another fund or if it's a re-up or if you're like an established firm, People are going to invest. They'd rather you wait, but they're going to do it because they know they have to. If you're an emerging manager, I, I, I would strongly discourage it. The other thing that's happening, especially for endowments or anyone who has like an endowment type model or they have buckets, is your equities just got crushed. And so you need to rebalance. 
And so let's imagine you had $100 of stuff, you know, of, of money, and you used to say, well, I want a certain percentage of some equities. You now have all of a sudden, like if you had, I don't know, 40% equity, let's call it, you now have 30% equities. And so you now need to take the money out of other stuff and put it into equity. Or if you used to always want 60% of your book to be liquid and 40% to be private, if your liquid book just got marked down, but your private mark didn't, then you have to take money out of the private market and put it back into the public market to hit your targeting goals. So not only are people not wanting to invest because they got hit and they're reticent and nervous, but it's also that they're having to rebucket into things away from you. And there's just too many, too many headwinds for now. Yeah. Well, luckily, private markets have a lot of dry powder, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that also how LP behavior uh, you think is going to is going to rebound here in six months to twelve months will also affect how GPs handle the dry powder that they currently have. Um, I mean, that's one of the things that um, you know when when this thing all started hitting, uh, we called all of our LPs from the most recent fundraise and said, "Hey, I just want to you know verify you're still with us, right?" And we got you know resoundingly hell yeah. And in fact, we had two of our larger uh, LPs say, hey, if you've got stuff that comes up as a result of this, you know, we'd, we'd be willing to put in more. But those are the types of LPs that, I mean, we, we obviously selected for heavily uh, and, and bought into sort of the long-term vision. A lot of the people that we've talked to that are on the LP side, I mean, it, it's, as Ali said, I mean, it's, it's just shut. I mean, there's just no way that they're going to be doing new commitments right now. Um, if you think about all the factors of why most GPs are shut right now, it's sort of a, an echo up the chain of, of, of why LPs are being shut, you know, same. I mean, they're dealing with triage the same as everyone else. I mean, you're, you better believe that, you know, LPs are being active in the, in the portfolio with their GPs trying to help triage and understand where you're going to try to, you know, put your capital to save some of these companies as well. Um, I think those are the discussions that maybe if you've, you know, if you're raising a first-time fund and you don't really understand those dynamics, it's going to be hard for you to understand why when you reach out to somebody, they're saying, Hey, I'm, I'm booked up. There's, there's no way. And so I think, you know, again, how risky, uh, where, where do assets flow in a, in a risk on environment? Um, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think that, you know, again, I, I'm not smart enough to know that, but I think it does have implications of how quickly will some GPs deploy, uh, knowing that it may be hard to raise no matter what their track record is, uh, on the back end of that. Totally. Let's, uh, let's spend the next uh, t- uh, 10 you know, closing minutes. Uh, just talking about predictions or cer- certain industries that we're excited to see different, uh, d- different, different trends or, or accelerants. I, I have two. Uh, one is uh, one is uh, something I'm excited about. Another is something I'm, I'm less excited or I'm curious about. So the first is uh, education. I invested in a homeschool company. I invested in a daycare company. I, I think you know the sort of shift from you know K to twelve to to something new uh, or the shift from university to, to something new because it's it's wildly expensive. I think is is accelerating uh, quicker because of this, and I'm excited to see uh, entrepreneurs create solutions to to solve that. So I'm looking to uh, to invest there, and and not that it's on the university level, at least not that it's bad. It's just that it's it's way too expensive, and people are taking on you know way way, way too much debt. Um, and so that that's a space I'm really excited to to, to see more solutions. I, I think one space that I that I think has not performed as well as it should have is is crypto. Uh, is, is Bitcoin. I, I think, you know, people were saying, hey, you know, this should be a flight to safety in, in these types of situations. Then people were saying, hey, not for, you know, these types of situations, but for other types of situations. But, it, but then with the, you know, Fed printing, you know, X trillion dollars, I think people are sort of, you know, understanding, you're learning about geopolitics and how strong the dollar is and how they can effectively get away with it in a way that doesn't seem to impact Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin pricing or, or Bitcoin prospects. And so I wonder what that means for people's uh, uh, understanding of, of, of Bitcoin. 
on Bitcoin, I was super bummed by how it performed. And I don't really have, I guess, I don't really have an opinion formed other than it didn't do what it was supposed to do. And that the government has shown that it's probably a pretty useful thing. Um, you know, it's probably pretty good that like the government told everyone to go home. And it's probably pretty good that the government made a lo- bunch of loans to people. And monetary policy is important because when you see deflationary events occur, then you know that you can go print money. And like, I didn't really have like a positive or negative view of Steve Mnuchin ahead of this. But like, I think he's done a pretty good job. And he had the benefit of, you know, seeing Hank Paulson fight really, really hard to get all this stuff done before. And I don't know, I feel better about having a government than not having one. The second is, you know, we're really focused. So I think a lot of, you know, investors are saying, okay, what changed about the world that's going to stay the same after all this is over? And I think one of the things we're trying to stay away from is avoiding any deal where because of the pandemic, the revenues are up and they're like, wow, we're like sort of counter-cyclical. You're not counter-cyclical. Like a pandemic happened. And this is like weird that you're good at being remote, you know, but that's not like a counter-cyclical investment. That's like a pandemic cyclical, counter-cyclical investment. And so those deals like aren't really that attractive to us because at the end of this, they're going to have a really big bump in Q2 and then they're going to go back to being the normal mediocre companies they always were. Um, I do think that there's certain things that like, yeah, of course, like stimulants. Like I think Lambda School is probably you know, pretty happy about this. I think income share agreements are going to get fucked. And so I'm glad I'm not in those. Zoom, you know, will probably matter. And we have, you know, Keelan and I have really close friends in Atlanta that we almost never talk to, or at least I almost never talk to. She's better at getting on the phone than I am. And we're talking to them every, we're hanging out with them every weekend now. So I think that's really cool. You know, Brent, I, I bet you, you feel like even better about not living in New York now. Um, <laughs> I think that, you know, it's really in vogue to say commercial real estate probably won't come back in the same way. I don't know. Um, I bet you like less undergrads are going to like graduate from college and say, no, what I really want to do is go to New York city and San Francisco. So I, you know, I don't have any like really groundbreaking things other than if anyone sends me one more deal that tells me like, Oh my God, I had this portfolio company is doing amazing because of the pandemic. You should totally invest. I'm not interested in that. Like I'm interested in companies that are going to be good in good times and bad. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that the thing that I'm, I'm interested in is uh, telemedicine and how that kind of comes out of this, mm-hmm. um, so one of the uh, a friend of mine uh, runs a, a local group that he's been trying for years to uh, work on state licensure type stuff. Um, it's really difficult. I mean, you you have to get licensed in every state to practice medicine there. The argument is that you know the Texas there's something about you know practicing med- medicine in Texas that's just fundamentally different than practicing medicine in Wisconsin, right? And you got to have local knowledge to know, and you got to make sure that you know the the people that are practicing in Texas know know Texas people as if they're different than, than Wisconsin. I think a lot of that BS is going to go away. I mean, one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm really hopeful, you know, for is even beyond telemedicine, uh, that a lot of this just state licensure stuff, just, you know, to have to braid hair or to do whatever, uh, a lot of this stuff gets opened up and is seen for what it's always been, which is to try to protect incumbents. Um, and hopefully we just like clear cut a whole bunch of that garbage that, that has been impeding really, uh, for the most part, the, the, the poorest entrepreneurs amongst us from being able to do their business. It's just a giant tax on small businesses. Um, so I'm really hopeful that that's going to open up and specifically in telemedicine. I mean, I think there's so much stuff that we do, uh, that we've done previously that's like urgent care type, type work. Um, you know, a buddy of mine's a, a, a good friend of mine's a doctor. And he said, he, you know, before this, he had done maybe one or two telehealth, you know, visits, if you want to call it that, uh, in his entire life. And now he's doing 10 of them a day, you know, and he said, actually, I'm a lot more productive. 
my clients don't have to you know drive to and from. We don't have infection issues within the office. Um, I think there's a lot of benefits to it, and so um, I'm pretty bullish on that. There'll be a, a whole crop of of organizations that pop up that can provide a a sort of meta layer of uh, truly fantastic health services, you know, through your phone. Uh, in essence, I think areas that I'm sort of I'm interested to see how they play out are really heavy asset uh, industries. I mean, this is sort of going about as far away from uh, tech and VC for the most part as you can, but I'm, I am curious, you know, you know, if you can take the, the, the aviation industry, I think it has incredible consequences up and down the chain. If you have a sort of 15%, let's call it material and sustained difference in air travel um, you know, sort of taking air freight out of it. Um, it has implications up and down the supply chain, you know, how often these parts are being produced by, uh, by companies. I think there'll be a lot of niches that are created, um, you know, as a result of it. But I think it's, it's going to be pretty damaging to these large companies that have this incredible infrastructure and footprint. And, and so that's another area that we're watching pretty closely right now is, is pretty heavy asset uh, type industries and, and, and companies. Um, heavy manufacturing, I think, is really interesting. I mean, if you, the margins have, have never been great there. But if you take out 10% of demand, I, I mean, these companies flip from being moderately profitable to being wildly unprofitable overnight. And I think that that's where some of these, um, you know, some of these things are just going to have to shake out. And I think everyone's going to get a big haircut depending on what the industry is. Yeah. And I want to comment on something you mentioned earlier, digital communities. I feel like it's opportunities for really new social experiences. Like some people are saying, you know, imagine if chat roulette had come out in this era. I I worked on a video startup, you know, 2012 that would have loved to see this era. It was sort of a game show type dynamic. The, you know, this should be a golden moment for virtual reality. It's, it's too early from a tech perspective, but if it was a few years later, I mean, people are, people are bored looking for new ways to connect and and new ways to sort of, um, you know, share experiences. Yeah, if you have kids at home, you're not bored. But <laughs> well, that I think there is. It's actually interesting. Uh, uh, somebody the other day on Twitter mentioned that they said there's like this big bifurcation right now. If you have kids, you're like working. You feel like you know, 18 hour days, right? You're going as hard as you can all day long, every day. And if you don't have kids, you're just bored as hell. So, yeah. <laughs> Eric, I'd rather play online poker later tonight. Yeah, exactly. Hey, yeah, Eric, you want to play online poker later tonight? We'll invite yeah. Brent. He can't make it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. but, uh, Sounds like a pen. That's a perfect segue. Ali has to go back to see his kids. I know Brent's faking it. Uh, <laughs> my guests today have been Brent Bishore, Permanent Equity, and Ali Hamed of CoVenture. Guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks, Eric. Guys. Good to see you guys. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.